Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to John Proust, who is Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Dayton, about his new book, The Mass Appeal of Human Rights. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Happy to be here. Um, th- this is a great book, and it's so, so well-timed. Um, I mean, in, in the States, you've got a really high-profile um, discussion about kind of branding and you know politics, human rights issues with with Nike at the moment, uh, and the book is you know really kind of uh, timely in terms of um, giving a background and allowing us to think sort of critically. Um, I guess the place to start might be. I mean, did did you feel this stuff was kind of in the air, you know, as, as you were writing it, or you know, was it a kind of a case of just you know lucky timing that? our current moments has intersected with your kind of broader intellectual agenda. Thank you for saying that and for framing it that way. Um, I, I felt as though, uh, you know, the initial impetus for the book was observations of things that were right in front of me and not in front of me as an academic or a scholar, but really in front of all of us. And and I think if there's anything that's appealing uh, or attractive about this book is, is the fact that these are sort of cases and examples and, and scenarios that we all recognize. You know, we see celebrities in human rights marketing and we see, you know, marketing adopt, as, as you have already suggested, marketing adopt a human rights uh, lens or at least, you know, some form of sort of a, a sense of uh, activism or protest, you know, in the Nike and Colin Kaepernick um, example. Um, and so what I did as I was observing these things around us, um, I tried to trace it back and, and see sort of what the lineage of these practices was. How, how did it emerge? Why? At what time? And, and how has it changed over that time? And, um, you know, what's interesting, and I, and I write about this in the, in the preface, is that one of the reviews that I got towards the end of the process was really about you know, whether or not this idea of, of particularly a transnational, you know, human rights advocacy, um, whether or not that in itself is a thing of the past. So on the one hand, surely this the mashup between, you know, politics and protest and commercialism is ongoing. But the idea that these big, you know, major transnational uh, NGOs, non-governmental organizations, um can or will still operate in this way in an era of retrenchment, of global retrenchment, of nationalism and all these things, really made me think whether or not what I've captured here is a bit of a time capsule. You know, it's a bit of a, a, a snapshot of something that had a beginning, a middle, and an end. Of course, we don't know yet, but it, it is curious to, to see whether you know um, walls and, and borders and, and, and nationalism will have an impact on how transnational uh, advocacy uh, takes shape in the future. So I think it's a little bit of, a little bit of both. There was definitely a lot of looking backward as well as sort of observing what was going on around us. If, if it's relevant today, then I would expect that's as much a stroke of luck as anything else yeah i mean the the examples in the book um i, I think are so 
illustrative of that you know i mean we'll maybe talk later about live aid and, and live eight and you know very very much a, a different global context um particularly obviously with uh, the trump administration in in the us having you know an explicitly kind of uh, nationalist or, or anti-globalist depending on which language you're, you're using um, agenda but i i guess before we dive into the specific examples we probably need to do a, a couple of things and the first thing is is maybe kind of draw out the book's central tension, uh, which unusually we, we might do by discussing Paris Hilton. Um, so, you know, but Paris Hilton opens the book and she is a really good example of the central tension, as the book describes, between, I guess, kind of, you know, consumer culture, as we've mentioned, and, and human rights more generally. So, you know, t- tell me about Paris. Right. Well, Paris Hilton is is obviously an extreme an ex- extreme example. Um, but the anecdote that opens the book um, begins with the subject line of an email that uh, pairs Paris Hilton with Elie Wiesel, the you know Nobel laureate and and survivor of Auschwitz and anti genocide crusader. And and you know it does I hope uh, establish a central tension in the book, which is this. Um, this uncomfortable relationship between something that is so severe uh, and so serious that is human suffering and, and violations of human dignity and how it makes us feel and what we want to do about it with this, you know, quite vapid personality that Paris Hilton cultivates for herself around, uh, surely around seduction and around sex appeal and around, and around, you know, herself being a, a, you know, a fashion icon very closely tied to, to a whole a range of different uh, examples of, of consumerism. And so, and I remember very well receiving this email thinking, this is odd. And, and what is it really, you know, evidence about the efforts that human rights advocates will go to, to attract an audience. And that this pairing of Elie Wiesel and Paris Hilton might be something that would occur to someone and say, this is a good idea. And this raises no flags to me is a, a red flag. It, it suggests that um, something, something has gone off the rails, you know, something is, is headed in a direction that I don't recognize. Um, and so that, that surely, you know, drove me to look back and say, well, how did we get to this? And, and, you know, and throughout, you know, the, the, the question of celebrity, of course, continues to, um, you know, pop up in various chapters. And again, Paris Hilton is an extreme, an extreme example, um, because of, uh, I think how, 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 well, frankly, how silly her, her persona, uh, is, or was at the time. And she's, she's hardly in headlines like she was 10 years ago, but, um, yeah, so that's, that's, that I think sort of frames the, the central tension in the book, this idea that human rights is something serious, something severe and consumerism tends to, to, to entertain us, to, to seduce us, um, in a way that, that frankly made me uncomfortable. Uh, and how, how do we get here? Cause obviously, I mean, I, you know, I'm sort of in my mid thirties and for me, celebrity has always been bound up with, with human rights. You know, it's been sort of for as long as I can remember, you know, growing up in the fact, some of the examples in the book were, were things that framed my youth, but this wasn't always the case. And, and you draw in particular on, I guess, kind of, um, a critical tradition in human rights study to say, actually, this is something, you know, comparatively sort of, of, of new and we need to, to think about it, um, in a historical context and ask, how do we get here? Mm. So I think the longest historical uh, vantage needs to recognize that this has been around in some form for quite a long time. Um, <coughs> pardon me. 
we could go back to the the free the free Congo movement or the Congo reform movement of the late 19th century, where uh, Mark Twain uh, and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle famously um, write and advocate for you know an end to the the personal colony of King Leopold II of Belgium. Um, you know, Mark Twain writes King Leopold's soliloquy, this this satire um from the from the perspective of king leopold and that in a sense is a kind of celebrity i mean he you know both mark twain and sir arthur conan doyle were approached uh well and approached the movement it, it came in both directions to lend their uh status and their own visibility to the movement um and so this and and surely that that's been the case throughout and you know um i, I talk periodically about you know other other times that this has popped up in, in history around um around uh well, the Vietnam War, surely, uh, the, the Biafra in the late 60s, the Beatles did, uh, you know, uh, sit-ins and, 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 and all the rest um, for for the, the suffering and the starvation in Biafra. And so this has something that has been um, a part of our international politics for, for quite a long time, I would say. But I, I still do think that something here is different. I think that something here has changed. And, and I think what's happened here has been this this collapse, this sort of flattening of the the space between entertainment and politics, um, so much so that today it is not only advocacy organizations who will seek out celebrity spokespersons to represent them, to raise their profile, to raise money, surely, to use their status to access decision makers, as well as to access the audience, the public. Um, but it also flows very, very specifically in the other direction, in, in which having a humanitarian cause has become as much a part of the celebrity um, profile as a new movie or a new album or a new commercial, you know, and there are firms that celebrities seek out and consult with to say, what cause it best suits the profile that I am trying to project, right? So this idea that 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 human rights humanitarianism, uh, you know, some form of of, of humanistic politics, um, is itself a component of of celebrity lifestyle. And I think you know, particularly as the book goes on, we talk about you know, Save Darfur and merchandising and all these ways. The way that human rights advocacy has been folded into a life as a lifestyle component of even every of, of everyday you know average individuals. Is very much mirrored in in the celebrity ranks as well. That flattening you describe between celebrity and politics beautifully sets up the key sort of theoretical um, engagement that's in the book, which is with the ideas of the Frankfurt School. Um, you know, and, and their longstanding criticism to things like consumer capitalism, of you know the sort of uh, role of, of particular kinds of of ideology and, and I guess a, a sketch of, of why they matter to the analysis um, might set us up for uh, for what comes as a I guess a kind of critical theory take on things like amnesty uh, live aid on you know saved our four and this kind of stuff so so yeah what, why were the Frankfurt School I guess kind of important and why were you drawn to them? so you know as a, as a student of, of political theory um, the Frankfurt School just always turned me on frankly it always um, sort of captured my my imagination, but more than imagination, it, it seemed to distill the life, the, the 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 world that I was seeing, and put it into a language that made 
sense of the things that I was seeing. Um, so maybe that's a, a bit of a, a, a selection bias, but but it resonated with me and it helped me understand and then helped me describe the world that, that I was living in and the world that we were living in and tensions of commercialism, um, the, the weakness of, of mass politics and of and organized politics and grassroots politics. And so you know, thinking again, you know, obviously the critiques of, of the of the Frankfurt School in in the in the dilution and the marginalization of the of the working class of leftist movements, you know, through the 1960s, I connect to to human rights, and in, in as much as human rights to me is an is an air of a kind of internationalism that has a progressive vision that is um, again rooted in, in individual dignity and and autonomy and, and and a sense of freedom that that I think the Frankfurt School critique helps describe uh, equally well. Um, it's not rooted I mean human rights politics is not rooted in the kind of materialism that a leftist politics is but I, but I think that the shape that you know human rights movements, mass human rights movements, transnational human rights movements have taken can be e- equally well explained you know by the ways that they've integrated um, and they've been they've integrated consumerism and have been shaped by consumer capitalism um, in the same ways that 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 Marcusa or Adorno describe, the effect of those forces on on working class mobilization as well and and so that's sort of that's a leap i think and and i and i wonder how that how that 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 um you know that uh that sits with people because i you know i i when i think of the legacy of human rights i see a radical legacy um i see a legacy that that stretches back across you know direct action grassroots movements um that that challenge the arbitrary exercise of power and and center you know human dignity in a way that 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 is uh, quite radical um and so and so i think the 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 um the watered down version that we get in these mass campaigns that i describe are a result of the integration of of consumerism and and human rights if that makes sense I mean, the, the really easy way to, to kind of, I guess, further justify or, you know, to, to, to illustrate what you're saying, if people might have a bit of skepticism, is with um, your critical theory reading of the history of uh, Amnesty International. Um, and, and I think we, we might spend a little bit of time on that because it, it, it's such a, you know, sort of a clear example, particularly of, I guess, how Amnesty changed over time um, in terms of, uh, as you've identified that, consumerist and, and celebrity element. Sure. Yeah, I mean, so the 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 story that I identified um that I th- that I think gives birth to the model of transnational advocacy that we see is a very sort of, you know, uh, emerges out of a very pure financial need. Um, Amnesty International, you know, is, is created or founded in 1961, the 1960s, uh, by Peter Benenson in in London, and and its, you know, rise is described better better than in my book by uh, Stephen Hopgood and Keepers of the Flame, who I think really, you know, um, lays out the ethos and the and the the you know the fabric of Amnesty International very nicely uh, in that book, which I call, which I've always quite liked. Um, and as Amnesty grows in the '60s, it establishes national chapters across Europe and in North America. In the '70s, it spreads further 
It expands on its work, um, including uh, opening uh, a national chapter in in the Soviet Union, um, and it sees its membership really explode, really explode in a very profound way. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of members of paid, dues-paying members across the world of this international human rights organization. Um, something you know, a, a development that that cannot be overstated um, how, how how monumental that that sort of a, a development is um, but it showed but it but it also exposes you know the constraints of its model of a deeply decentralized funding um, and centralized efforts in terms of centralized work in terms of research and and and, and uh, you know campaign work um, you know um, Political prisoners and the adoption of political prisoners by local chapters, etc., just places enormous strains on the on the international secretariat of Amnesty International. And so there's a moment, and this is again in the context by the mid seventies of uh, of recession and economic downturn, um, where Amnesty is on the verge of bankruptcy. And you know, national chapters and you know the archives are kind of uh, you know cute about the ways that various national chapters and local chapters. Um, national sections and local chapters, the lengths they go to to raise money, um, you know, selling cups of soup on the on the street corner or uh, having bake sales or, you know, very sort of, you know, um, very low level uh, opportunities at, at raising low levels of, of money. And, and in the UK, um, uh, one of the, the officers in the secretariat uh, comes to know, comes to be aware of the fact that John Cleese of the Monty Python's Flying Circus um, is a supporter, and and John Cleese is approached to uh, with a proposal or with a suggestion that they do some sort of a benefit event, and so uh, you know out of this sort of need, I think John Cleese had given a donation, and they noticed John. That's what it, they did. They noticed John Cleese's name on the check, so they approached him about having a greater role in raising money, and so out of this interaction out of this uh, exchange is born the secret policeman's ball which becomes a string of of, of comedy concerts and, and and that um also begins to integrate music by the 80s and that becomes sort of much larger concert events that that are international as well as in in the u.s by the mid to late 80s um and so you know live aid that that would follow this model and not only follow accidentally but have a direct connection um in the artists that perform and in, in including in some of the organizers. So Sir Bob Geldof um, uh, was, was a, a, an audience member and obviously a, 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 a peer of, of Bono and, and, and uh, um, Sting and, and all of these, Phil Collins, all these people who would become synonymous with Live Aid and, and with this form of you know, human rights, humanitarian benefit concert. And I think it's honest enough. It's pure enough. It's genuine enough. Um, but but I think a you know a critical perspective must uh, insist that it leads us down a path um, that becomes that becomes difficult to un- unravel. Right? That it becomes difficult to slow down to. Um, you know, to undo. And, and so that's that, you know, so the, the Amnesty International at that moment taking on this form gives rise to this model that is now the model. So, you know, Live Aid in 1984, 85, you know, is then followed on by Live Eight uh, 25, 30 years later. It's just a, a very routinized go to 
sort of um, a, a model for raising money, raising awareness uh, anytime any kind of crisis emerges, a, a natural disaster, a, a famine of some kind or, or a war. And so, you know, I hope that this sort of, you know, shed some light on the origins of, of this, this model that we all know very well. I still got the impression reading the book that you were, I mean, I, I don't want to go too far with this, but, you know, perhaps more sympathetic to Amnesty than you were to, uh, as you say, the kind of the routine of Live 8, you know, and, and you sort of draw on Mark Hughes, you know, with um, the sense of a one-dimensional benefit concert. Um, and I guess this kind of critique sort of gathers pace um, as, as you bring in this idea of a, of a media spectacle, you know, things that are done uh, essentially in a kind of attention-grabbing, attention-economy sort of way. Um, and I guess it'd be interesting to to unpack that maybe with the um, example of Somalia, but, you know, primarily through the, the nexus of how reporting, grabbing attention, and this, you know, kind of broader idea about spectacle has, has accelerated some of the things that you were, you know, kind of cautiously critiquing with Amnesty. So... So I'm going to stick with the amnesty example before we move on to Somalia because I think that you raised something that's important and something that I struggle with, frankly. I'd be curious to know how you think about this. I am sympathetic to Amnesty International. It's sort of the my it was my introduction to the human rights movement um, as a high schooler um, and and through college, and it always sort of represented to me something very powerful. Something was something that was very local. You know, something that was rooted in ordinary people sitting around a table writing letters, you know, in a in a church basement or in a high school classroom or, or on a college campus, writing letters for a political prisoner somewhere just to let them know that they weren't forgotten. Like that to me is a very profound and very genuine sentiment and very humane. You know, it really, it really, I think, speaks to a, uh, an aspect of what human rights is. It's, it's about being humane. It's about, it's about respecting people. It's about rights and it's about law and it's about political pressure. It's all those things, but it's also, you know, I think at its, at its, at its base about humanity and, and, and writing letters to someone that you don't know who's in prison for something they believe in is, you know, among the most genuine gestures and and it is it is grassroots in the sense that you know it 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 requires people to start their own chapters and to be involved on their own terms and and purely voluntarily um and so there is a kind of uh innocence to it i i, I don't know if that's fair or not to characterize it that way there's a kind of innocence to amnesty that does provoke my sympathy and and i'm sure that comes through in, in the book yeah, as no, much as very I, much so very much <laughs> As much as I may have tried to hide it, or maybe I didn't, I don't know. And so, I mean, I think surely by the end of the book, I, I, I'm a little bit more critical of, of the arc, and, and we can get to that, I think. Um, yeah, but by the time you're talking about Madonna, it's clear that something has gone very wrong. Um, in I terms do feel of this, that way. This I do feel yeah, I do feel that way. I mean, and, and I think that, you know, so in the chapter where, where we talk about benefit concerts and, and that model that sort of links the John Cleese to the Bob Geldof uh, phenomenon, I mean, there's something that is that is far more um, overtly political 
rooted in the ethos of Amnesty International that is clearly not there in 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 the the famine relief campaigns uh, of Live Aid and and We Are the World and all the rest. The politics clearly drops out by time you uh, by 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 time the model is adopted by the by the anti famine campaigns um, in a way that I do feel is very different. So you know. Amnesty International has a com- has a complicated relationship to politics as such. They, you know, clearly it is a political act to write a letter to a foreign head of state and and demand that that policies be changed. That inherently is, is political. Yet, Amnesty International retains this sort of um, sort of apolitical or 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 you know non political or at least non partisan sort of a, an, an approach that you know that permits it to be make political claims without taking sides, right? These are the sort of lines that it uh, straddles. And so there, there's a sympathy that I, that I think if it builds, it, it builds in its critical um, uh, capacity. But I also do think that, you know, the model was, uh, was, was born out of a very genuine sort of, you know, cash strapped uh, moment um, without anticipation for how it might evolve. This isn't the case with Saved R4. And, you know, what becomes effectively, I suppose, that you're most critical in the book, you know, an exercise in, in kind of merchandising and, and, you know, branding and, and back to, you know, celebrity as well with, with little of that grassroots um, political engagement or even actually the broader money raising and kind of, you know, awareness raising um, of, of the famine campaigns. I think that's true. I think that there was something about Saved R4 that really crystallized. I mean, it really felt like a culmination of all the things that had come before it. So it was the engagement with celebrity. It was the engagement with entertainment. It was the attractiveness of of human rights, and in this case, genocide prevention. Um as as a component of a you know a contemporary lifestyle, it was something to be expressed on a bumper sticker or a, a rubber wristband, or you know the sort of absurd extent to the merchandising. It was a dog, you know, uh, uh, your dog could eat food out of a Save Darfur branded bowl, and there were underpants and 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 all sorts of other you know silly integrations um, into pop culture that you know uh, just border literally on the absurd. Um, and with no grassroots in, in engagement. And so it became this sort of this facade of mass engagement. Um, but the political efforts underway were, were purely mass were purely elite rather there, you know, the, the, the advocacy efforts and the political pressure um, against the Bush administration were engaged at elite levels um, without any, any, specific political um actions by by the supporters and 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 for saved our for for me the way i'd read it um this was all intentional this wasn't an accident you know they they engage in in high levels of um of advertising and they literally employ firms whose uh, other clients are are you know uh kentucky fried chicken and and pepsi cola and you know and so to see this the way in which human rights branding can slide so so seamlessly between the sort of corporate and the political 
um, to me again is another another very I hope very clear example of this collapse of this the way in which you know the the corporate the commercial and the political um, have folded into into one another in a way that 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 makes the political frankly um, you know um, just unrecognizable. I mean, I, I picked this this comment out from the um, concluding parts of the book in, in particular because I was so struck by it, uh, with, with Madonna talking about Pussy Riot, um, who, you know, are in, involved in being imprisoned and, you know, cam- campaigns for human rights uh, in Russia, and, and Madonna referring to them as, you know, her fellow freedom fighters. Now, you know, Madonna is important in a lot of kind of complex cultural studies ways, but freedom fighter wouldn't have been you know the kind of phrase i'd point to when when thinking about her and and i guess there's there's maybe two things that flow from that one is you know are, are we at now a phase where and you alluded to this at the start where there's nothing to be redeemed at all from these human rights campaigns because they are just you know methods of either elites or individual celebrities to kind of brand themselves but actually like and the kind of second part of that is there something we can salvage you, you know is there still something of that original sort of um amnesty um set of practices that is resistant to a you know modernity a dialectic enlightenment a, a one-dimensional approach as you identify in the book yeah well i i, I surely hope so I, i'm not i'm not a fatalist when it comes to these things uh even if i'm i'm a skeptic uh, and so you know with respect to this this is again you know, this um, bringing human rights home is another concert event that Amnesty International holds that, you know, is very self-consciously a, uh, a reimagining. I mean, if it's reimagined, it's at least a repurposing of these concerts that, that Amnesty held in the, in the late 80s, both around the United States and, and, and later in 1988 around the world. Um and Pussy Riot, of course, was very of the moment, um, having having been, you know, imprisoned by Putin, and and they themselves are are, are very radical, um, you know, um, you know, very much, you know, in the spirit of uh, of 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 a Guy Debord, you know, the, of of a, of a sort of utilizing public spectacle uh, as a as a disrupting cultural event, right? And so the the videos and the 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 things that they would stage, the protests that they would stage would would be an attempt to bring some of the you know social tensions to a fold, whether it was around consumerism or about around politics or 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 et cetera. And, and so for me, um, this was a, a, a bad example. Well, a good example of, of a bad trend here where, in which the, you know, Amnesty International was seeking to capitalize on the radical cachet of Pussy Riot without taking seriously um, the sort of the, the threat that they posed to Vladimir Putin, right? I mean, in a very specific kind of way to have drawn his ire and you know even more recently very recently a member of their collective was poisoned i mean they're they're clearly um, uh, a very significant thorn in the side of that regime that administration and so yeah and madonna madonna does have a a cultural uh, an important cultural role when it comes to you know sexual revolution and feminism and and all the rest which is not to be um ignored uh, or or overlooked 
Um, but it did feel as though in this moment um, and in the broader sort of tour that Pussy Riot did of the United States after they were released from prison, that they were trotted out onto stage. And this is taking their agency away from them. And I, and I don't mean to do that. I, I do, though, mean to focus on the way in which they are utilized um, by a major NGO like Amnesty International in a way that it, it is not um, – I maybe exploitative is, is overstated. I don't know. That that feels exploitative. It feels like they were brought out to say, look how look how radical we are, pussy riots here with the balaclavas and and the prison time and and all of this other you know all this other sort of um, you know stuff that they bring with them. Um, and, and so I, I don't think that this is a you know I don't think this is a nail in the coffin. I don't think this is the final signal that you know transnational human rights. Uh, is dead or or sort of beyond repair you know I, I do i'm you know i don't i don't i don't make too many uh i don't i don't hide my sort of you know my my commitment in a certain way to um improving and 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 reclaiming or rescuing or whatever we want to say the merit of of human rights as a valuable framework for articulating you know claims around justice and fairness and and dignity and equality um i am deeply troubled by the shape that these uh campaigns take and the associations that the broader audience has with human rights um as a product of it the concluding question is always a sort of what what comes next for the author and and i just wonder actually you know is is this um a kind of moment for you to have settled accounts to an extent with human rights and to, to move on to a different subject or actually, you know, are you going to kind of do, do, do more work? I mean, particularly perhaps practical work actually given, given the context in, in which the book finds itself. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, I think, and I, and I, I, I tease this out somewhat in chapter one too. I, I think there's, you know, in a lot of the critiques of human rights, um, that have emerged there's there's this i think it ends up being more of a subtext um there's a sub there's there's a subtext or a a subterranean sort of desire for or or a a yearning for human rights to be something other than what it is now and and i think that other than is not clearly articulated in many other critiques and i don't know if mine is but i'm i'm i've been thinking a lot about it since the book came out what we want or expect from human rights is something other than this shallow, commercial, elite sort of falseness that we see when we look at the things that I described in the book. What we want is something deeper, profound, personal, sustained, solidaristic, right? Rooted in solidarity um, rather than sort of superficiality or indulgence or, or, or you know, self-satisfaction. I, and I think that in the critiques, and I, and I, and I include and I mentioned, in, you know, Stephen Hopgood in, in The End Times of Human Rights and Lily Truliaraki in her work around Ironic Spectator, you know, which itself I think is quite critical. But I think the positive politics is still missing in those works. And I think I allude to it a little bit, and, and, and it's things that I've been focused on more so. And, and I think what, what is alluded to is a refocusing on grassroots movement building, that none of the, the, the elite level transnational campaign work matters without the commitment and the work of, of human beings uh, 
committed in a in a in a more sincere fashion to political change to reform to you know uh institutional accountability etc and, and and so you know that's why i do i you know again i share some sympathy with the the structure of amnesty international because i think it is some attempt at that it is an attempt at ordinary people organized around you know, kitchen tables and church basements to organize themselves to to to, to influence politics. Um, that being said, Amnesty's never really put any effort into true movement building on the grassroots level, and and so I think that you know a a re a, a dedication to that work and 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 an appreciation for the other organizations that do that work you know movement building and organizing is not is not a a, an, a new or novel charge you know obviously organized labor and and in the united states um you know the chicano movement and and others um have always done organizing it's door to door it's face to face it's person to person it's through personal relationships and and to 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 borrow um, uh, borrow a quote from a man named Fernando Garcia of the Border Network for Human Rights, which is a, a you know human rights organization based in El Paso, Texas. That I, I recently, um, where I recently did field work, you know he he talks about organizing as the development as the transformation of personal relationships into political relationships. This is about or it's about movement building, and it can't happen without those relationships. It can't happen through advertising. It can't happen through celebrity seduction. It can't happen through, you know, our familiar, you know, experience of all, you know, witnessing distant suffering and watching the same news, you know, having the same experience with media, you know, either social media or broadcast media. It 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 must be more personal. It has to be more personal, and so, you know, at this moment of of well of threat on the one hand whether that's the rise of the right wing the rise of surve- of surveillance the closing of of civil society space you know around the world the a moment for rethinking for human rights organizations what does it mean to to invigorate a public around these norms and challenge the the, the prevailing forces that that really threaten the things we believe in <laughs> 